You're listening to a C3 Victory podcast. To find out more, visit us online at c3victory.org.au. time in his presence. By the way, just a little bit more. The presence conference this year, believe it or not, is called Breathe, which uh, means we're going to give space for the Holy Spirit to breathe. That's what it's all about. And we want to give space in that in in our gatherings, you know, where we get together. We want to give space just for the, the soul to breathe. Need air. Holy Spirit is our air. We need air. We need time to do that. So many churches just kind of rush through. They're more worried about the clock than they are about His uh, favor. Um, and, uh, you know, we don't, want to, we don't want to be like that. So, it's great. You doing well? All right, you ready to stay alive with me? Good. Come on. Hey, you know, the reason why we're here in this city at this time and the reason why we have a vision called Victory Emerging it's to live out and fulfill His calling and His purpose in our lives, both individually and as a community. Now, I'm not talking about the community of Newcastle. I'm talking about the community of victory. And there are two main reasons that everything else kind of hinges upon. Number one, we are called here and we have a vision here and we are here for this time to make an impact in our city and beyond for the kingdom of God. That's what we're here for. You know, that's why God hasn't just kind of taken us out of here into heaven where he can enjoy fellowship with us face to face. He's left us here so this city can be impacted for his kingdom. And secondly, to be intentional about making disciples who make disciples. That's what it's about. God doesn't want anybody to perish. And it's our kingdom commission. It's found in Matthew chapter 28. Now, I'm going to unpack a little bit of that uh, today um, where Jesus, let me give you the context Jesus is raised from the dead. Mary sees him. All of a sudden, she goes and tells the disciples, John and Peter run to the tomb. Peter's out of breath. He's old and fat. John is young and trim. And uh, and he gets there before Peter. Okay, some of you got it. Peter's middle-aged. John's young. Um, And he gets there, and he's amazed. And all of a sudden, they see him on the same... They go back and tell the disciples, and the disciples are going, yeah, right. And especially Thomas. Well, I'm not going to believe till I touch him. And on that same afternoon in Jerusalem, Jesus invades that room without opening a door. And he goes, here you go, Thomas, touch me. Isn't it interesting, the Bible doesn't say he touched him. He just fell on his knees and said, my Lord and my God, which is amazing. And poor old Thomas, man, he gets a flogging. Um, That's not for you, Richard Maria. The name doesn't mean doubt. Thomas is a great name. You might not know about poor old Thomas, the doubting disciple, Hey, stop that. I don't see Jesus calling him that. But not only that, Thomas went on to take the gospel to India when nobody else would. Amazing, which is good. But so Jesus appears to Mary, to then Peter, John, then to the disciples, the 11 of them uh, in the upper room or in an upper room. And then eight days later, he appears again to them. So by this time, you think they'd be going, got it, we're in. We know what it's all about. Interesting, if you go to Matthew 28, I haven't done that, but you just backtrack a few verses, you know what it says? And many of them still doubted, or some of them. So Thomas isn't the only doubter. 
Now, here's my point. Even after seeing him miraculously, they still wrestled with doubt. I suspect that many people don't live out the Great Commission because they're still wrestling with doubt. Even after having encounters. And Jesus knows this in his heart of hearts. So he now all of a sudden, days later, in Galilee, he's no longer at Jerusalem. This is days later, probably weeks later. He steps into the room again, knowing that they're doubting. And he says this, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's the context. He's saying, don't worry. Don't doubt. I'm not only here in front of you, I am here with every bit of authority that's needed to change nations. Man alive, this is powerful. Because I don't just have authority right here in this room, I have authority in heaven and on earth. You know what that means? The principalities and powers that have been trying to rule people and bind them now has to be subject to him. Okay, here we go. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, these truths are at the heart of our vision. They make up what we're calling our kingdom commission. Why we do what we do. And I want to unpack that. I want to see what it actually looks like. Because we want to live out of this commission so that we finish our race knowing we have faithfully achieved the mandate that we've been given. We don't want to just peter off into old age. We want to finish on fire. Anybody? Gatekeepers should be shouting about right now. We want to finish on fire. It's, It's a horrible thing. I don't know if you've ever run in a competitive race. But it's a horrible thing to start getting closer to the end and you have no breath left. No strength. Your legs are burning. Your lungs are burning. Your legs feel like they just can't move anymore. I ran one half marathon in my... Yes, sorry, Simo. (laughs) Got the picture. I I ran my one and only half marathon just because I could. It wasn't a... I wasn't like Jeff Pond. Jeff, where are you, Jeff? Wave at me. Yeah, he's about to run one barefooted. I said, are you that bored that you don't have anything else to do? I mean, every year he runs marathons and half marathons. He goes, oh, that's getting boring. I think I'll run a half marathon barefooted now. Whoa, goodness. I remember my first and only half marathon. I was running with a partner, and we're running along this guy in South Australia. And uh, thinking, 21 Ks, flip. How am I going to do this? Literally, I got to the end of it. And unlike Simo, um, sorry, Simo. How old were you when you did that? What? How old were you when you ran your 28? Yeah, I killed you. I was 29. All right. No, I just turned 30. An older man beat you. Anyway, I got across the line. Literally, I, I, I don't know if you ever had this happen if you've run distance. My legs didn't want to stop. I'm serious. I kept wanting to go. And that's, that's a sign of two things. Either number one, I didn't run hard. Or number two, I had momentum. Now, I I don't know about you, but I kind of want to finish this race with momentum. I I want my spirit to, you know, the body is starting to get tired. I want the spirit man within me to go, come on, there's more. And, And I want to be faithful to do what Jesus told us to do, which is, by the way, far more than just facilitating church programs and activities. 
We need to, need to make that distinction right here and right now. I like what uh, Pastor Peter McHugh said. It's on that slide again. Churches and their leaders know they're called to make disciples. However, I wonder if it's time to articulate what a disciple should look like from God's perspective. Now, here's what I found. A handful of churches and church network that I was in contact with in the States while I was there for five weeks, there was a common theme coming through. Now, the kind of churches I hang around uh, traditionally have been into mega church and church growth, uh, you know, numbers, church growth. Even the network that sent me and Janet to Australia, it's called the Liberty Network, the leaders of that network were starting to talk to me in the same kind of terms, and I'm going, something has shifted in the psyche of these churches in America. Now, I'm not saying all of them, but the ones that I was talking to. And they were now starting to use the phrase, making disciples. And I thought, right. So for decades, you have been so focused on getting hundreds or thousands of decisions that you now realize that you haven't effectively made disciples. Now, there's nothing wrong with getting a decision for Christ. That's where discipling, well, sorry, that's actually not right. Discipling begins even before that point, when you start walking them to Christ and through that decision to maturity. And all of a sudden, the churches have realized in America, we are really not doing that great of a job in this mandate of reaching this nation. Now, some of you are switching off right now because you think I'm talking about evangelism. Turn the switch back on because it's far more than that. Don't stop listening. Because a disciple is somebody who is far more than just being actively involved in church programs. And they realize that just getting somebody involved in a program in church, and nothing wrong with that, you should be involved, but for the right reason, in the right way, for the right purpose. So you've got to stop and go, well, what does a genuine disciple look like? Well, a genuine disciple looks like a person who has compassion for people. I can't even think about doing this commission if it's just to get somebody to attend my church. Listen to me. It's very easy for us to be under the pressure of numbers and feel like we've got to go get more people because the numbers aren't what they could be and should be. And then all of a sudden, my motivation becomes numbers, not souls. And not only souls, God's not just interested in your disembodied soul. He is interested in you as a person. Wholeness. And so... This compassion for people, loving what Jesus loves. People. While we were in the States, I get this random text one day from Pastor Phil Pringle. And I thought, oops, better answer that one. And all of a sudden, he's got a picture of our journal, Simon. Somebody had given him our journal. Was it you? Huh? He got our journal, loving like Jesus. And he, he, he was commending our church on the journal and saying, you guys go for it. And he was encouraging us, man, live this thing out. And I'm telling you, I want to encourage you, don't stop when you get halfway. This is a lifestyle, not a program. Love like Jesus. Our driving motivation is a love for people. We shouldn't even think commission if we're thinking we've got to get more leaders, we've got to get more students, we've got to get more, more, more. Start thinking Him her, them. Make it personal. Love them. We've got to see people the way Jesus saw them. You know, it's like, God, I, I, I struggle to love people like that. 
They can be a pain in the you-know-what at times. And yet Jesus looked out, he looked out over them and they were actually being a nuisance to him at one stage. I don't know if you know that. He's trying to get away from them and they won't leave him alone. Even the Son of God got tired of people at times. I find that encouraging. Nothing else said. And all of a sudden, the Bible says he looked out on them, this whole multitude of thousands. And what does it say? He had compassion on them as sheep without a shepherd. All of a sudden, their needs became bigger than his need to be alone. So what did he do? When they were hungry, he fed them. When they were hurting, he healed them. When they were lost, he found them. Such was his compassion for people. See, making disciples is far more than just getting somebody to make a decision. Building them as a husband, as a wife, as a son, as a daughter, as a student, as a worker, as a citizen. See, a genuine follower of Christ has the capacity, and I'll tell you this now, you go, well, I, I just can't love people like Jesus did. Lie. And, and that lie is not coming from you. I'm not calling you a liar. There's a voice in you that does not belong to you. There is another voice called truth that says you have the fruit of the Spirit, which very first one is love. You can do this. I can do this. No matter what your personality style, this is not according to personality style or gifting. Hallelujah. I don't know if you've ever heard of the guy, uh, uh, Mosaic Church, California. Erwin McManus. I heard him preach for the first time and I thought, if you guys think I am fast, I need to, I, serious, I had to put texting on the television to keep up with him. And I found out why he speaks so fast. It's because he's nervous in front of people. He's an introvert. Which is interesting for a guy who's creative by flair. And he said, I'm an introvert. I don't do well in crowds with people. And he's got a mega church. How does that work? God. It's not according to personality. It's according to the spirit. And a genuine disciple says, compassion for people. But a, a, a genuine disciple also looks like a person who lives. Now, I'm going to say this. Listen to me. Lives in obedience to him. Obedience. Grace never nullifies obedience. Mm, don't like that one, do you? This is doing what Jesus did and doing what he said to do. Because he did that. Listen, Jesus lived in obedience to his Father's will. He said, not mine. It's not my will. I came to do the will of him who sent me. Now listen to me. Every one of you have been sent. Every one of us have been sent. Oh, no, I haven't, Keith. I'm not a missionary. I'm not a pastor. You're a disciple, though. Mm-hmm. Matthew 28 isn't just for 11 men. It's for every follower of Christ. You're sent. Simple. And a genuine follower of Christ is going to do the Father's will, not his or her own. I don't know about you. I'm sitting in my back lounge this morning trying to think, Father, what do you want to do this morning? And I'm literally asking him not to bless what I do. But Father, you, you are going to bless what you do. And that's what I want to do. It's not what I want to happen in the service. Father, what do you want to happen in the service this morning? 
And, and somebody said it, read it years ago, I'd try to claim it, but I know I'd get told off afterwards. But when we get to heaven, Jesus is not going to ask, what did you do? Instead, he's going to ask, did you do what I told you to do? And what he told us to do is this, he gave us a command to live by the Great Commission. And by the way, it's the Great Commission, not the Good Suggestion. And that commission is to every one of us, not to a special few with gifts, personality, anointing. By the way, every one of you have gifts, every one of you are special, every one of you are anointed. Because His Spirit's on you. And He gave us a command. And the thrust of this passage is in the phrase, make disciples, wherever you go, wherever you are, whenever you are at work, whether you're at home, whether you're with family, friends, whoever, help people to be like me. Not just to follow me and believe in me, but to become like me, disciple. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Obedience. Grace has never stopped commands. Commands, you know, you know one John says his commands are not burdensome. I want you to think about that for a minute. When, when we say the word command, some people immediately think, oh, restricted, bound up, law. Come on. Don't you think it's a command, you must be born again? Does that restrict you? No. It frees you. It saves you. What's so restrictive about loving and serving people? And he said, this is my new command. Love one another. What's so restrictive about that? What's so binding about being generous? These things free us. They don't tie us down. His commands are not only burdensome. He actually said, if we love Him, what? We will obey these commands and keep them. For some reason, other people get this weird sort of view that grace means that any kind of command. I had a guy in South Australia tell me this. Keith, you should never, it's interesting that he's been so forthright when he tells me I should never use the word must in a sermon. I, I looked back at him and said, well, you should never say to me never. Or I should, you must never say. And I said, no, I just looked at him and said, so I can never say you must be born again? Because he, he had this weird view that any phrases like must or you, you should do this or have to do this, all of a sudden puts us under law. And John 3 wasn't about law, it was about salvation. You must be born again. And, and his commands don't all of a sudden nullify grace. Loving these commands is a mark of a true disciple. That's just the way it is, I'm just saying. Because the commands are about the qualities of faithfulness, humility, intimacy with the Father and doing His will, compassion. Love one another. Being a disciple, somebody who's like Christ, is more than just ticking the church box. Yeah, I went to this meeting, went to that meeting, got involved in this, got involved in that. Look, you could be in the Freemasons and do all that stuff. Heaven forbid. Listen, keeping his commands. Because in making disciples, our mandate is about this, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. I mean, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? So what do you think of when the words teaching them 
are used? What, what goes through your head? You know, I, I, I think of things like classroom, Bible study, connect group, sermon. People go, you should teach in your sermon. Yeah, and more. Pharisees taught better than I ever could. Listen to me. It's spirit and truth, not just truth. And listen, while teaching is involved in all of these things, it's certainly not limited to these things. Because the context here says, teaching them to be like Him. You know what a disciple is? A disciple isn't just a student, but a disciple is a student who becomes like the teacher. And that's what Jesus is saying. Teach them how to become like me. Teach them to do what I would do in a, in a situation like loving and serving. Remember what I just did a few weeks ago before I gave you this? I can imagine the boys sitting there, the 11 of them, and they're going, Oh, oh, he wants us to do that. Golly, we, we stuffed that one up, didn't we? Because here's what happened. On the night that he was betrayed, he said, go prepare a room for Passover. So they got all busy, and they got the setting, and they got the bread, and they got the wine, and they got all the things they need to have for Passover. But the one thing they forgot was serving, loving. Because in their minds, we're on the precipice of an outbreak of a kingdom that's going to overthrow anything and everything around it. And when that kingdom comes, because this only happened days before, we want to be right by his side as his generals. So James and John come with their mother and say, when your kingdom comes, forget the other ten, put us by your side, we're the boys, we're the men, sons of thunder. I find that interesting, sons of thunder have to get mother to ask. That's just, it doesn't fit. I'm sure they had a tattoo with a heart with mom in the middle of it. So they enter the room and the atmosphere is tense because they're vying for position. Now remember, he had already told them before they got to the room, you shouldn't have a culture like this. The kingdom of God is not one where you vie for power and position and authority over each other. It's a kingdom. I didn't even come to be served, but to serve and to give my life. They still didn't get it. They walk into the upper room, and the, and the most basic thing is neglected by every one of them who were hosting the Passover. You know what it was? Jesus pushes back from the table, gets up and strips naked. The Bible says he's stripped naked. You go, what is that? He's showing humility. And all of a sudden, he takes a towel, wraps it around himself, and he gets down on his knees with a basin. And I like what Eugene Wilkes says in his book, Servant Leadership, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the banner of the kingdom was a dirt-stained towel. And he starts washing their feet and wiping them with the very thing that's covering his shame as a naked person. They're horrified. 
Because you see, in that culture, it is the lowest slave or servant in a house who does that job. But they were thinking, I am so important, I'm not even going to provide that, much less do that. And Jesus is saying in picture form, do you really want to be my disciple? Because this is what it's like. So he steps back, puts his clothes on, sits at the table, and they're still gasping for breath. (gasps) Peter's just opening his mouth to change feet. And Jesus just calmly says, do you know what I just did for you? He didn't just cleanse the dirtiest parts of their body. They're in Palestine, dirty roads, open sandals. The dirtiest part of the body, which by the way, sits next to the table while they eat because they sit on cushions with their feet out to the side, that must be washed. I don't know if your mother always says before you went to the table, did you wash your hands? In that culture they would say, did they wash your feet? Jesus just says, do you realize what I just did for you? No, no, I didn't just cleanse the dirtiest part of your body. I just established a culture of the kingdom that can change nations. I didn't create an organization with programs and activities. I created a culture that is so countercultural to the world where push versus shove that people will stand amazed when you live like this. That is overflow. I'm just saying. It's like Jesus saying, make disciples who are like me and who will do what I would do. You know what that means? Serving people, freeing people, finding the best in people. Because to be taught as a disciple is more than just knowing about him. It's an endeavor to become like him. I don't know what you think when, if I came to every one of you and put the microphone under your mouth and said, are you a disciple of Christ? Yes. What would you then say if I said, what does that look like? Not just to you in the mirror, but to your spouse, to your kids, to your neighbors, to the people you work with. What's that look like? Because a genuine disciple has compassion for people. A genuine disciple lives in obedience to him. But let me give you one more. I need to close with this. We'll come back to it next week. A genuine disciple looks like a person who has faith in his plan. Don't miss this. Believing what Jesus commanded is possible. All nations, are are you you sure about that? We thought we were going to be the the minority on the planet. We thought we wouldn't make, we're just waiting for the second coming to rescue us out of this, out of the majority who are so corrupt. How many Christians think like that? The whole world is corrupt and I can't wait to get out of here. That wasn't Jesus' approach. The whole world is lost and I can't wait to see them saved. And it's possible. Listen, Think about it for a minute. Would he literally give us a commission that's not possible? I'm just saying. 39 years ago, God started the process of talking to me and Janet about coming to Australia because of faith in this commission. To join you and other Australians in this commission that this nation and the nations around it can be, should be, will be made into disciples. And that's what keeps me moving and motivates me. Every one of my close friends, the guys on the moose hunt, and by the way, for you greeny females, 
Sorry, I don't mean to be slurring, but I didn't shoot one moose. Oh, God bless your cotton socks. I did shoot a few Christians, but anyway, no, not true. Not true, not true. But you know what they asked me? Keith, you've been there uh, most of your life now. Will you ever come home? God, that's a tough question. Very tough question. It wasn't tough to answer. Not at all. Just all of a sudden dawned on me, this is my life. This, this, is, this is why I do what I do. Because I, I believe literally that we can go and make disciples of all nations. It'd be easy to be home. It'd be easy to be in the land of church. But this is my calling. This is what I live for. And gee, it was a, you know, it's a, it's a question that all of a sudden is this stark reality to go, no, we have no plans of moving back to America, ever. I will be buried in Australia. And it was just a silent, sobering moment for them just to go, oh, because in their minds, you, you shouldn't live anywhere else but America. By the way, we almost didn't get let in. It's all because of you. We sound like you now. Not true. No, we've traveled on Australian passports, and at, at L.A. at the last port of call, they said, why don't you have American passports? And I stepped forward and said, we're Australian citizens. And she just persisted, but you were born in America. Why don't you have America? And this went on for 10 minutes. I thought, they're going to turn us back. I've watched border security. They send people home. <laughs> anyway, I, I was reading a book when I first came to Australia at the beginning of 82. It's falling apart. And it's called The Making... Just persist with me a minute. This is going to stagger you. It's called The Making of a Disciple. It's literally falling apart. Let me just read to you what he says about this commission. And is it really possible? Because I don't know about you, but I look at the world now. Back in 1981, when I picked up the book, the, the planet had four, just over 4 billion people. And you go, we can't do this. So even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because we can't complete this. And yet Jesus said, I'm not coming until it's complete. I hope you know he said that. Anyway, so this guy, I started reading it, so let me read it to you. Can you imagine, now remember this is 81, can you imagine reaching over 4 billion people with the gospel? This task of fulfilling the Great Commission seems so staggering that even visionaries might be overwhelmed and wind up doing nothing. Mm. But the Bible is a method book as well as a message book. And Christ's method is to make disciples. Suppose the first day, on the first day, I led one person to Christ. Subsequently, I led another individual to Christ every day for the rest of the year. All right, let's put the chart up. By the end, this, this chart's in the book, by the way. He just doesn't complete it at year 33. By the end of the year, I would have directed 365 people to the Lord. If I continued to do that for the next 32 years, I would have reached 11,680. I've been leading people to Christ now in Australia. How long have we been here? Almost 35 years. And I've not gotten anywhere near 11,000 people. And he goes, that would be quite an accomplishment. And we'd all go, yeah, hallelujah. On the other hand, suppose that I reach only one person for Christ that first year. This time, however... I discipled him for an entire year so that he was thoroughly grounded in the Christian faith and became capable of reaching and discipling another. 
The next two years, each of us reached one additional person and trained those two to join us in training others. If we continued this for 32 years, there would be 4,294,967,296 disciples. We have reached the world. That's in 81. Now, Darren graciously added for us, if you just went one more year and you kept multiplying two by two by two, we would have reached over eight and a half billion. The planet has been reached. Is it reasonable? Is it possible? Absolutely. But it's only a reality. This kingdom commission can only be achieved when we have faith in his word that says you can do this. All nations. I told you how to do this. And if it, in everything we do as a church, our relationships, our connect groups, our ministries, our outreaches, our worship services, we've got to have faith that it's possible and we've got to be intentional that we can make disciples of this city and beyond. But for it to happen, guys, we've got to know who's going to be involved in this. We've got to know how we're going to do this and we've got to know where it starts happening. That's for another day. But what I want to close with right now is this. Jesus secured the success of this mission by doing exactly what he said he did. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. Therein lies the promise of success. If this mission was so valuable that God the Son would give his life to achieve it and then hand it over to his disciples saying, I believe in you, you can do this, then it's worth giving your life to. Let's stand our feet, eyes, eyes closed. Heads Thanks back. for joining us for the C3 Victory Podcast. We would love to see you at one of our services. To find out more, visit us online at c3victory.org.au or check us out on Facebook or Instagram.